Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, I talk with local music writer Martin Keller about his decades covering Prince. Bill Werner catches up with R.T. Rybeck on the former Minneapolis mayor's new book about his time in office, and Mike Grimm goes one-on-one with Link star Lindsey Whalen. But first, the news surfaced this week that an addiction specialist was set to meet with Prince at the time of his death, and the Drug Enforcement Agency is now involved in the investigation. That prompted MNN's Tasha Radel to take a closer look at the prescription pain pill epidemic that's affecting families nationwide and close to home. That's right, Scott. The news that broke this week was chilling. As I started researching prescription pain pill addiction, I ran across an alarming statistic. 44% of Americans said they personally know someone who has been addicted to prescription painkillers. Joining me now to break this all down is drug expert and founder of Drug Abuse Dialogues, Carol Falkowski. Carol, my first question, what the heck makes these pills so addictive? The thing is that with prescription opioids, they're like heroin. You know, they're in the same family. They work the same way. So they're highly addictive. And it doesn't matter if you're a prince or a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. It really knows, doesn't discriminate at all. It knows no boundaries. Anyone can develop an addiction to prescription pain medication. And, you know, over the years, we've really seen a kind of an epidemic uh, of prescription pain kills and, and heroin. And do you believe that is uh, due to the overprescribing, perhaps, of, of opioids from doctors? It's become a perfect storm that has gotten us to the situation we're in now with prescription pain medication. Over 250 million prescriptions are written each year by doctors in this country, which is enough to keep every person medicated on pain medication 24-7 for a month. So the supply is enormous. Uh, It's happened as a result of, of medical doctors prescribing it for people who are in chronic pain, which is pain that is, you know, not related to like some operation or a surgery or after an injury. So people have are getting it for very long periods of time. And initially, doctors were trained that if you give people prescription pain medication, you don't need to worry about addiction. That is how many of them were trained in medical school, you know, 20 years ago. But we now know that that that's not the case, that, that many people can develop addiction if they are on them for prolonged periods of time. In addition to that, uh, in the late 1990s, pain was added as part of medical practice to assess people's pain. So if you go in for a sore throat, you see that little smiley face, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain level? So we have this increased emphasis on pain. So it, it really has become the perfect storm. What we need to focus on is changing the practice of medicine and really looking for the best circumstances under which these painkillers should be prescribed. Perhaps they should only be prescribed for acute pain following acute injuries or post-surgical pain. And for people who live in chronic pain, and there are a lot of people who live in chronic pain, a hundred million people in this country experience chronic pain, uh, for those people, look at what other tools are in the toolbox to help address their pain other than opioids that have this high abuse and high addictive potential. The other big thing about opioids, because every group of drugs has its 
unique characteristics. With methamphetamine, you know, we saw the physical deterioration and the dental problems with people. But with opioids, what distinguishes them is that just a little bit too much can kill you. You know, people think that somehow addicts are in control of things when, by definition, addiction is something where the drug and alcohol abuse is out of control. So people are impaired. Their judgment is clouded. And uh, if their addiction is to painting pills, they can lose track of how many they're taking um, because their thinking is clouded. Their judgment is impaired. And so just a little bit too much can be enough to produce respiratory arrest and kill someone. And, you know, obviously we've been seeing many headlines, you know, whether it be prescription uh, pain medicine, heroin's been in, you know, making the headlines over the past several weeks. Do you feel like people are catching on and, and, and finally it's hitting home that seriously we have a really, really bad problem here? Um, I don't know. The growth in the prescription painkiller and heroin problem is something that started out back 15 years ago and has been gradually increasing in spite of this added attention to it and greater public awareness and greater awareness among the medical profession, we're still seeing uh, more and more painkillers prescribed. That hasn't diminished significantly. So I don't think medical practice is changing to a great extent. And we still see uh, deaths, and they may be slowing down a bit, but they're very elevated relative to even five years ago. And we still see record amounts of heroin being seized by law enforcement agencies around the state. So I don't know. To reverse this epidemic, uh, it's different than other drug epidemics. To address any drug epidemic, you need prevention, law enforcement, and treatment. But with this drug epidemic, because it is fueled in part by prescription pain medication, we need to scrutinize and change the very practice of medicine. And that is really a tough nut to crack, so to speak. Well, Carol, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Any final thoughts? The bottom line is that addiction to pain medication can happen to anyone. It can happen to an artistic genius. It can happen to... Uh, anyone from any walk of life. And we all need to be aware that these are dangerous substances and uh, the path to addiction is a slippery slope. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Minnesota and the world have been in mourning in the days since Prince suddenly and shockingly passed away at his Paisley Park home and studio. So much has been said, written, and speculated about how he lived his life. One thing that most seem to agree on, Prince clearly had a significant impact on his home state, and Minnesota helped shape his creativity and who he was. One person who watched, listened, and talked to the Minnesota music icon from the beginning is former City Pages and Twin Cities reader music editor Martin Keller. I recently spoke to Keller about his long and fascinating relationship with the man who created the soundtrack to our lives, Prince. Well, I met Prince in, I think it was right after his first album came out when he was roughly 17, very shy teenager. I think most of the interview we did was conducted on the uh, kitchen floor of Bobby Z, his drummer's uh, apartment, which was over by Lake Calhoun at that time. Uh, very difficult to get uh, solid answers out of him. In fact, I w- worried whether or not I, I even had enough uh, quotes for a story, but turns out I, I did get enough. He has such a reputation as being someone who is cryptic, mysterious, obviously genius, very unique as a talent, but as somebody who had developed a relationship with him over the years, is there something... Was there something normal about him in your dealings with him that is would maybe be surprising to people or, or that would give people a different understanding of a more well-rounded person than just who we think Prince is? Well, it's hard to uh, attribute normalcy to a, you know, a, a guy like Prince who's obviously a workaholic and that, you know, that can be a very bad thing and somebody if they do it repetitively uh, year, year after year after year, but yet that's the way he produced such the such a treasure trove of uh, recordings. You know all those uh, discussions about the vault at Paisley. I mean, he um, apparently had hundreds, if not thousands, of songs or demos already in the can in the in the 80s. I would hear stuff from jimmy jam or terry lewis or some of the folks in the revolution you know like prince could be putting out records uh he could put out three records a year if he wanted to for the next 10 or 20 years and and that was then i mean we're 35 years down the road from that period so but you know i think uh i heard a lot of great stories about him you know uh how he liked to relax on the basketball court and was an excellent basketball player and uh, you know, there's been some recent video of him riding his bicycle around Chanhassen and over in the Paisley Park parking lot. I mean, that's that's a normal thing people do. And but uh, I think anytime you've got uh, a very sort of introverted personality with uh, that much uh, superlative talent, uh, who doesn't like to interact with the with the media or the press, which he did not early in the in his career um you're you're going to get uh, lots of mythologies true or false built up around that personality i mean it's a lot like uh, i think prince in some ways took a page from the bob dylan uh um uh, career you know dylan was uh, mysteriously elusive and reclusive and didn't really talk to the press didn't really need the press to survive uh, his his work spoke for itself, and I think at the end of the day, that's the same thing could be said of Prince. 
we were talking earlier about some funny stuff. I I, I just want to go back to that because I just had this memory pop in my head. I sure. remember going down to a, uh, I think it was a rehearsal at the, uh, was it the Superdome? I think it was the Superdome for something. And uh, he pulled up in a BMW with Vanity, his girlfriend at the time, and the lead singer in the Vanity Six group that he um, brought to life. And he was trying to parallel park, and he he saw a couple of us. I think I was there with a couple other journalist friends, and he could see us, and we were watching him. And he, you know, went up on the curb twice, and. <laughs> And sort of like wince, like, oh, they're watching me parallel park, and I'm totally blowing it. And, you know, the guy was a human human being, and uh, when you see those little sides of Prince, you go, yeah, he's one of us. But at the same time, uh, he was he was not really one of us. He was a very unique and uh, rare individual, and we were lucky to have him for as long as we did. Martin, I'm pretty sure that that's the first instance of a Prince parallel parking story that I've heard ever. So. Well, I'm not sure why it occurred to me, but it was a pretty vivid memory and a, a pretty funny occasion, actually. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I've enjoyed it, and I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Scott. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Last night, we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd. Wait, but there were only four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. <sighs> and we're fireflies. Yeah, we are. Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before. And we invented glow in the dark. Yeah, we invented it. And we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. Woo-hoo! So come check us out. Check us out. And bring your kid all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah, and I'm super claustrophobic. Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you and discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. See you later. Yeah, see you soon. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. So you see, son, good manners are very, very important. Someday, many years from now, when you're a grown-up, you'll be a man. And when you are, you should be a gentleman. Do you want me to go through it one more time? Yes. Yes, please. Yes, please. Exactly. Always say please, thank you, you're welcome, and excuse me. Sit up straight, hold doors open for ladies. If a door's shut, then knock first. Don't burp, don't swear, don't speak with your mouth full, don't reach across people's plates, keep your elbows off the table. What table? And don't interrupt. While we're at it, don't stare, don't use foul language, don't call people names, but do remember people's names. Always share your toys, play nice, and cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. On the bus, give up your seat to anyone who has trouble standing. Bottom line, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Got it? Got it. And stop picking your nose. Most parenting is hard to do in just two minutes. But spending just two minutes twice a day making sure they brush their teeth is easier and could help save them from a lifetime of tooth pain. For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit 2min2x.org. That's 2min2x.org. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Mouths, Healthy Lives, and the Ag Council.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Former Minneapolis Mayor R.T. Ryback is out with a new book about his 12 years as chief executive of Minnesota's largest city, but also the life experiences that brought him there. It's called Pothole Confidential, My Life as Mayor of Minneapolis and is published by the University of Minnesota Press. MNN's Bill Werner talked with Ryback as he embarks on a book signing tour. Mayor, you know, I, I got to say, the first thing that came to mind is where'd you get the title? Because everybody kind of thinks, oh, mayor of Minneapolis, you know, high level uh, city planning um, and all those kind of things. But, but where's the pothole confidential come from? Well, I got the name, uh, the place all great men get names from uh, and everything from, which is their wife. My wife came up with it. You know, that book Kitchen Confidential, it was about a chef wrote but what really went on in a restaurant. <laughs> I wanted to write what really went on in City Hall. And uh, I'm a washed-up journalist, and I'm a washed-up politician. And I <laughs> figured I'm going to be more the washed-up journalist this time than the politician, and I tried to just kind of tell it like it is. I think that you, as well as any author that I've ever read, are able to communicate You know, the, the start of where a person's motivations and how they end up doing what they're doing. I mean, tell people about, just a little bit about that. Well... It's important, I think, when you're doing a job like a mayor or, or anything, really, is to figure out that you didn't just get dropped down from Mars that way. You're a product of the way you grew up, the people who raised you, the influences you had. And I tried to really um, explain that a lot of the reason I wanted to be a mayor was because I grew up straddling different lines. I was in a middle-class neighborhood. My parents owned a drugstore. We weren't rich or poor. Um, they took all their money and sent me to a uh, private school where everybody was richer than me, almost everybody. But they had a drugstore in a part of town that was pretty, uh, had a lot of crime and poverty at that point. So everybody was around there was poorer than me. So I straddled all these lines. Yeah. And I think on some level it taught me that the city that I loved also operated on a few different levels and not a, everybody was as lucky as me. And that began to kind of form where I was at. And, and those themes came back to you as mayor? It, it was really, to me, important when I was doing the job to understand why I was there. Mm -hmm. When I was at a scene of a murder, the only way I could really be sincere in that moment was to figure out what would that be like if that was my kid. And when you do that, you begin to go through a whole lot of different things in your head in an attempt to try to relate to someone or help somebody in a tough time. But it also, you know, begins to take, frankly, a little bit of a toll. And I got into that in the book as well, that you can't be as immersed in death and tragedy as I was and not have it, you know, stick a little bit. Well, Mayor, let's, let's stay on this theme for just a little bit, but not too long. Um, yeah. In your 12 years as mayor, what was your saddest moment? And I, I suppose you had a number of them, but is there one that really stands out? I think I know what you're going to say. I'm not sure, but... Yeah, yeah. there's no doubt that the saddest moment was uh, Tisha Edwards being killed, a 12-year-old girl, mm -hmm. doing everything right, doing her homework after school, and yeah. um, a couple of gang members took shots at each other outside, and it went through the window and killed her. And I had a 12-year-old girl at that time. And um, I became friendly with their family, wonderful people. And um, that was definitely the saddest the happiest was creating Step Up, putting 22,000 young people into summer jobs. And the book has the tough parts, but also has, it's got a chapter called Jesse Ventura and Two Drunk Firefighters, which is a, <laughs> kind of a funny night with, uh, <laughs> with uh, the governor and um, 
Then there are just kind of wacky things I wrote about Officer Mike, the cop who rode with me, who is a character unto himself. And there's some inside stories about, you know, meeting George Bush and Obama and kind of saying an inappropriate thing unintentionally to Michelle Obama. You know, I mean, there's some, some weird, funny stuff and some tragic stuff, which is the job. One minute it's funny as heck or, you know, euphoric, and the next minute it's tragic. And that's just what it was like. Let's talk about the future. Um, because you certainly, in your 12 years as mayor, you, you presided over a tremendous amount of change in, in the, the city of Minneapolis. And, 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 and Minneapolis, of course, played a, a broader part in, the, in, the, in what was going on in the state and even the nation. Um, yeah. But now there is a very big challenge uh, before the city of Lakes, um, and, and that is the issue of, of equity, of racial equity, uh, economic equity, the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, Jamar Clark shooting, all of these kinds of issues. Um, from your perspective as mayor, what observations could you offer at this point for to, to, to help us all try to get through this? Well, Minneapolis is a great city, and Minnesota is a great state. And uh, the biggest single problem we have is that it's not great for every single person, and it's not um, equal for every person. We know what our problem is. And so that's why when I left being mayor, I jumped into what I thought was the biggest issue of equality in a state, which is education. That's what I do for a living now. There's no, I'll give you the one thing to close the achievement gap. Uh, when you give me the one ingredient it takes to bake a cake, I mean, it's a recipe. It's not one thing. But um, what I tried to do in the book was approach several things. I have a, a chapter called The Safe Place to Call Home, where I really try to delve into what it meant to get to understand the inside of a police department and police culture, and also why I thought there were some disconnects often when police would arrive at a scene. When we look at public safety, for instance, you can't expect a person of color, especially an African-American, to always arrive at that scene in neutral because there's a whole lot of history there. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think there's a whole lot of history of unjust treatment, they're not paying attention to these videos that are now coming out, and they're, I think, really demonstrating that there are times when there is not equity at that moment. There are also times when I have met phenomenal police officers doing amazing work, totally unheralded, in trying to get over these racial lines. And when we stop putting labels on each other and try to open our eyes, that's helpful. I don't have an answer to it, but I wanted to give people a deeper understanding. Former Minneapolis Mayor R.T. Ryback, author of Pothole Confidential, My Life as Mayor of Minneapolis, just published by the University of Minnesota Press. I'll be back with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm when Minnesota Matters returns. Who might you save? Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, and son. Learn fast, F-A-S-T, the sudden signs of a stroke, and you could save your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach. F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911, F-A-S-T, face, arm, speech, time. That's F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of... Your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather. So learn FAST, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on, because you never know who might save you. 
Your wife, your colleague, teammate, mother. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota sports landscape hasn't exactly been rolling up winning scores or winning teams of late, but as the WNBA Minnesota Lynx prepare for the start of the 2016 season, hopes are high for a repeat of 2015 when the franchise won the league championship for the third time in five years. And as MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm tells us, that expectation got a shot in the arm because of how Hutchinson native and star player Lindsey Whalen spent her offseason. Scott, most WNBA players also have contracts and play for overseas teams during the traditional wintertime basketball season. This leaves the summer months for the WNBA to play a 34-game regular season. Knowing she had some wear and tear on her 33-year-old body, Whalen chose to not chase the international money this past year as she had done in prior seasons and instead stayed home to rest and recuperate. I was kind of feeling it all kind of all summer that I should probably take a break. Um, just coming back from Turkey was uh, it was tough. I mean, we went to we were still playing at this point last year. So, I mean, it was great. We made the finals there, but it, it ended up being probably three weeks longer than I thought it was going to be. So probably, I mean, I'm probably June, July was like I, I need to take a break and then just the injuries that I had kind of reinforced that, that I was like, all right, I need to take a break. I need to rest. I need to just be home, um, not, you know, do basketball every day and just really take that break. And I feel great. I feel really refreshed. I'm really thankful that I ended up taking the whole time off. There's a, a couple weeks there where I, you know, maybe go to an overseas team, maybe not. It turned out I didn't, and I'm really thankful now for, for that. And, and looking ahead to the Olympics was definitely something I know. It's a, I've been through it before in 2012, so I knew the, the commitment you have to have to your body and, and the time that it that takes and what it takes for you to be able to play at a high level for that long. So at this point in my career, it was just, I think, the, the best thing and, and the smartest decision for me to, to stay home and and really take a break. Waylon battled through injuries most of last season and limped her way through the postseason run. So she says the physical rest this winter was important, but so was the mental rest. Maybe even more, honestly, just because you just kind of get into that. I know a lot of players talk about it, but just overseas, back, over, you know, it's um, it's tough when you're younger. It's, I mean, you you know, it's, it's great. You're, you're getting better. You're working. Um, but I think at a, at a certain point, your body kind of lets you know when it's time for, for a break. And and then, yeah, just the mental part of being able to do a lot of things in the offseason, travel a little bit, see family, um, do some other things, and then also work on work on a lot of things basketball-wise and work on, like I said, the, the offseason training program. Actually be able to do those things was really, really beneficial and really a lot of fun for me. As training camp continued this week, Waylon says the decision turned out to be a good one. I feel really good. I just feel... Um, yeah, I just feel mentally really like refreshed and excited and not that I wasn't excited before, but there's just a different feeling when you when you miss it for a whole off season. I haven't really had that since college, honestly, or maybe my rookie year when I didn't go overseas just to have that where you have a whole off season where you don't you don't play. You end up missing it and you wanna you really wanna have that extra time to come in and work and and physically I was doing exos all off season, which is like an off season, you know, speed and you know, lifting program, so I think at this point in my career, it was just it was smart to, to focus on those other things and to be able to play as long as I wanted and as healthy as I want. So, I, like I said, the first week has been a lot of fun, just um, even taking on more of a leadership role, me and Maya, because, you know, Sylvia's never done a training camp, you know, with us. Renee has never done a training camp. Gia's 
a vet but hasn't done our training camp. So it's made me and my, I think, having that much more of a leadership role and, and definitely both of us feeling refreshed and ready to go, I think, has made for, so far, a really good week of practice. And while Waylon is a star on the links, Maya Moore is the superstar, and the superstar is happy for the star. I know that time off for her was, was well needed, and she used it to the full. I know I was keeping up with her in the offseason a little bit, and just having some conversations more recently of how good that was for her body, for her mind, for just her, her passion to, to be able to, to give even more to this team because that's the kind of point guard she is. She gives so much to her team. That's why you all love her. That's why we love her. And so now that she has more to give, watch out. You know, it's going to be... Uh, 2011-esque, I think. The former Golden Gopher star Waylon says winning a third title last year was harder than people thought as the team made some midseason trades and had to meld together before the playoffs. Last year was a, was really a, a great accomplishment for us that we won because, you know, how you just yeah bringing them in, I mean, obviously they're wonderful players, but they still have to learn kind of, you know, what we do in the plays, and I think a lot of the credit goes to, to coach just to be able to kind of keep us focused. I think the way we were able to, you know, then me and Simone later both going out, we still were able to get home court throughout the Western Conference. I think the way we were able to, I don't want to say piece it together because it was a championship year, but it's a pretty good accomplishment to be able to say, hey, we went through all that and we still won, and we went to game five. I mean, it's pretty crazy. So looking back on it now was definitely – I would say our, our hardest and looking, you know, maybe in 10 years will be the one where like, you know, I still can't believe we won that one. So it's, it's pretty cool to like have the opportunity this year to repeat because of what we had to go through last year. So we're thankful for that. The Lynx will open the 2016 regular season at the Target Center on Saturday, May 14th when Phoenix visits Minneapolis. Scott? Thank you, Mike. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks for listening. Tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.